controversial subject of uh, religion and politics. Uh, Jeff is exactly right. You're not supposed to talk about these things when you go to parties if you want to keep your friends. And so I guess I'm going to lose twice as many tonight because I'm going to talk about both religion and politics. And I'm going to hope to do so in about the space of an hour. Toward the end of my lecture, I'll throw open the floor to questions so that if you'd like clarification of things that I've said or if you'd like to question them or perhaps challenge them, you'll have that opportunity. Uh, but I would ask that you wait till um, you at least hear most of what I have to say before we get into that kind of uh, uh, discussion. Is the religious right right? Is it correct? Is it appropriate? Is it morally approved? that Christians get involved in politics and get involved from the right side of the spectrum, if you will. And the answer to that question, just in case you have to leave early, I'll just tell you right now, the answer is yes, the religious right is right. And the answer to that question is no, the religious right is not right. And so that settles everything. So you can leave and you can fill in, you know, whatever that means, whatever you want it to be. Well, let me explain what I think that means. I have a great sympathy for what is called today the religious right. I, however, would like to address a correction, or perhaps it'd be nicer to call it a challenge, to the religious right uh, in terms of the way in which they set policy and the way in which they go about trying to change the political order. The first question, however, is should Christians be involved in politics at all? That's where many people who are involved in the religious right uh, take a hammering from their Christian brothers and sisters who will tell them that it's either inappropriate because Jesus doesn't care about the political order or maybe downright immoral because it's just opening the door to the coming of the, uh, the beast of Revelation or the Antichrist and you're just cooperating with them. So the religious right often takes a hammering because they think Christianity should break out of the institutional church beyond the walls of the church and start influencing the world out there, the world that is often called the secular world. Those who have thought through their premises, those who have uh, looked at their first principles of operation, those who understand their theology and the nature of Christianity and how it affects this world, will tell you that we shouldn't call that the secular world in the first place. For you see, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's what the psalmist said, Psalm 24, 1. And so though many in this world may treat earthly affairs as secular, from a biblical or Christian point of view, nothing in this world really falls outside of the realm of religion. Those who believe, however, that part of life is sacred and part of life is secular, almost inevitably will put the political sphere, the domain of politics, socio-political affairs, uh, civil magistrate issues, law, crime, punishment, court issues, they'll almost always put those things in the secular arena. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is a king, Jesus is a ruler, Jesus is Lord, but that means he rules in the religious domain. He rules in the church. He rules in my own personal um, religious life or ethical life, maybe in my family as well. But outside of those areas, Satan is in charge of things. 
And we don't want to go out into the realm of Satan. We don't want to uh, say that Jesus is king out there because at least in this age, that belongs to the evil one. Along those lines, I would remind you, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John, the 19th chapter, that when our Lord Jesus was condemned to die, he was condemned by the covenant people of God, who were in apostasy, of course, but nevertheless, the chosen people of God, in union with the civil judges of that day. Pilate, who condemned Jesus, was of a mind, if you'll read the Gospels, to let him go. Who would not allow Jesus off the hook? It was the Jews. The covenant people of God, apostate, but nevertheless the covenant people of God in that day. And as you see in John the 19th chapter, if you look at verses 12 and 15, when the crucifixion of God's Son was demanded, the cry of the people was, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate had said, you want your king to be crucified? And the response was, he's not our king because the only king we have is Caesar. And you know the dreadful thing, brothers and sisters, is that the evangelical church today has come to reflect the same sentiment that they do not want a king, Jesus, to be ruling out there in their political affairs. As far as they're concerned, in politics, the only king is Caesar. But when the church of Jesus Christ began to preach in the first generation of the Christian church that Jesus was Savior and Lord, the response of the world, the response of the world to the early church was, we see this in Acts 17, verse 7, that they are teaching contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, namely Jesus. The earliest days of the church confronted the very issue we confront tonight. But in the early days of the church, it was the world, or the apostate people of God, that wanted Jesus to stay out of the political domain. Those who were unbelievers didn't want another king, Jesus, to rule over political affairs. The apostate people of God in their unbelief didn't want Jesus to be a king. They wanted only Caesar to be the king. Isn't it dreadful, then, that the church in our day is full of professing believers who imitate the same attitudes of the world and the apostate people of God. Only Caesar, thank you, only Bill Clinton is our ruler. Jesus has nothing to do in that domain. And the reason I've come here tonight, first of all, is to defend then the religious right that Christianity goes beyond the confines of the institutional church and even asserts the crown rights of Jesus Christ, that he rules in every domain of life, including the domain of socio-political affairs. According to the Bible, all political leaders are ethically obligated to enforce the moral law 
of God in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm going to argue in the second half of my lecture that they are to enforce only those provisions that have been laid down by King Jesus uh, for the coercive use of rulers in society. But the first part of my lecture is that they must enforce what Jesus says they are to enforce. They are to rule under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. I believe it is the civil magistrate's proper function and his duty to obey the scripture's dictates regarding crime and punishment. I take the scriptures to be the word of the Lord Jesus Christ from cover to cover. And whatever the scriptures teach, we may not get into a lot of details as to what that is, but whatever the scriptures teach about the um, obligation of civil magistrates, the law that they are to enforce, that is obligatory upon Bill Clinton, that's obligatory upon the state government of Idaho, that is obligatory in all ages and in all places. Because Jesus Christ does not rule as the King of Kings in a temporary way or in a geographically limited way. He is the Lord over all creation and has ascended to the right hand of God precisely to take that rule. To sit down at God's right hand so that the nations would be given to him for his possession. Now I understand very well that the law of God that we find in the Bible is not a textbook of statecraft. I don't pick up my Bible and think that I'm picking up a, a textbook in political science. Nor do I think in my, that I'm picking up a book that speaks to every social situation, every culture, and every political detail. The law of God is not a textbook of statecraft. Um, I don't want to suggest that the statutes that we find on our law books are only those things that we would find in the Bible. Traffic laws are not going to be found in the Bible for obvious reasons. And I don't want to suggest that the wording that you find in the Bible is exactly what you would find in a complex technological society. We don't find um, the discussion of computerized theft or copyright infringement in the Bible. So please don't interpret me tonight is saying that we should read verbatim right out of the book of Deuteronomy the civil code for every nation. Moreover, I'm going to make it clear at the beginning rather than at the end of my lecture just so you understand from the very outset. I don't believe that we as Christians have done our homework in all the areas that we need to so that um, there's just no more question about how to interpret the law of God and apply it to the modern world. There's a lot of work left to be done. And it may be that we're, we're, we're going to have to be unsure about some things until we've done our homework and we've discussed it and prayed about it and so forth. And so please don't take me tonight as coming in to tell you, hey, I've got all the answers. Let's just open up the Bible and boom, 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 every political issue is settled. But I do think we have a program here I believe that it's a divinely inspired program. I believe that it's permanently relevant, and I believe that it's the only way we're going to solve the socio-political problems and perplexity that we're in as a nation, by following the law of God as it's been delivered to us in the pages of Scripture. Now this idea that civil magistrates are under obligation to obey the King of Kings and therefore enforce his laws, it's found in the Scriptures. This idea was once a... Um, a very commonly held one 
in Christian circles. But I think you know that today it is usually met with intellectual shock, if not a very uh, hostile, personal uh, rejection. Why is it that in our day and age, this thesis that Christians ought to be involved in politics, trying to bring our political world into greater conformity to the law of the King, Jesus Christ, why is it that in our day and age that idea seems so outrageous? One of the reasons, I'm sure, is the um, particular interpretation of church-state separation that we find in our culture today. Many people think that the church and the state being separate is like the secular and the sacred being separated. There are writers who will concede that God's law should be applied to personal ethics or social ethics or even ecclesiastical ethics, but then they'll turn right around and say, but never, never, never should it be applied to political ethics. Now let's think about that. The law of God is binding in all these areas of life over here. Family, okay, personal matters, church. But it is not binding over here in the state. Now what does that separation suggest? That distinction, I would argue, does not arise from the literature and teaching of the Bible. But rather arises from the Enlightenment-sponsored rationalism that quarantines politics, science, and any other material concern in history from religious revelation. I can't give you a lecture on the history of philosophy and theology tonight, but I'm hoping many of you will be at least vaguely familiar with the history of Western thought, whereby eventually the revelation of God, if it was thought to be valid or legitimate or true, or if it existed in any sense, nevertheless has been quarantined into a privatized area. It may have something to do with your emotions, your heart, your eternal welfare, but the revelation of God cannot be applied to material concerns, you know, the day-to-day -day world of natural history, um, natural science, and what I'm saying is politics as well. This, men this mentality, I think, has been especially fostered by the notion of the separation of church and state. The idea that there can be no connection between religion, represented by the church, and the state itself. However, and ironically, it, were, it was the Puritan forefathers in our nation's history that taught the separation of church and state, and yet they were the ones who adamantly maintained the state should obey the laws of God. The reason for that is the separation of church and state was always understood as an institutional separation. The institution of the church should not rule the state, and the institution of the state should not rule the church. However, that institutional separation has no logical bearing upon the transcendent moral authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule over every sphere of life, whatever their institutional form. Jesus is Lord over the family as an institution, and Jesus is Lord over the church as an institution. Now, that doesn't mean that the family and the church you know, are the same institution. There is a separation of those two, even though Christ is Lord over both. 
Likewise, Jesus is Lord over the institution of the state and Lord over the institution of the church. Those two don't need to be mingled for both of them to recognize that they owe their allegiance and obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, the doctrine of church-state separation does not entail the separation of the state from ethics. And it is precisely to such ethical concerns that the law of God speaks. The separation of church and state, therefore, has nothing to do with the state being free from the moral dictates of God's law. The relevant moral question is whether or not the infallible word of God countenances an exemption from God's law for modern civil magistrates. Does God in his word teach, Jesus is Lord over all, all the world owes him allegiance in whatever institution except for politics? Is that what God says? Is that what the scripture teaches? That civil magistrates are exempt from the authority of God speaking in his word. I think if you will study this issue with your Bible open, it'll become very plain to you that any such exemption would have to be read into the text of Scripture because you cannot at all read it out of the text of Scripture. You have to bring that church-state separation understood as the state is separate from the laws of God. You have to bring that to the Bible to find it at all. But you will not find it in the Bible. You'll only find it in your own attitude and your presuppositions that you bring to the Scriptures. You see, the political exemption from obligation to the dictates of God's revealed law falsely assumes that the political validity of God's law was unique to Old Testament Israel as a nation. Those who think that God laid down laws that, are, that uh, culture is to follow, laws for the state, but don't think that they apply to the state today, are arguing that God gave his law only for Old Testament Israel. Now, of course, there were many unique aspects to Israel's national experience. There were many unique aspects and important discontinuities between Israel and the pagan nations round about. Only Israel was in an elect, redemptive, and covenantal relation with God. Only Israel was a type of the coming kingdom of God. Only Israel had a kingly line that was specially chosen by God. Only Israel was led in war, in holy war, by God. But the relevant question before us is whether the standards for Israel's political ethic were also unique. That is, that God had laid down a political standard that was somehow culturally relative. Are we to believe that the justice that is revealed for socio-political affairs in the Old Testament was only for Israel, only for the Jewish race, so that God really has a double standard. Let's stop and think about this. What that would mean is, God tells Old Testament Israel that rape, kidnapping, whatever, is to be punished by the civil magistrate and to be punished with death. However, if you go over the county line, pardon the anachronism, you go into another county and you engage in rape or kidnapping, then there's a completely different standard of justice. 
Are we to believe that that's the kind of God the Bible reveals to us? Absolutely not. In fact, if you look at what the Bible teaches about the civil magistrates in the Gentile nations surrounding Israel, you'll see that it is impossible to hold that God had one standard for the Jews and another standard for the Gentiles. For you see, the Gentile civil magistrates were expected to uphold and to enforce the provisions of God's law. Now, if Old Testament Gentile magistrates were obligated to uphold the Old Testament law given to Israel, then it stands to reason that Gentile unbelieving magistrates in our own day and age would be obliged by God to do the same. In Psalm 2, you will notice that God holds the Gentile magistrates, the kings and judges of the earth, God holds them morally obligated to submit to his rule and especially to the rule of his chosen son established on a Mount Zion. Now, if those who were ruling outside of Old Testament Israel were obligated to submit to the Messiah, indeed, precisely in their political functions to show their allegiance and to kiss the Son, then how much more would we expect those who rule after the coming of the Messiah to do the same? David declared in Psalm 119, verse 46, that he would speak God's testimonies before kings and not be put to shame. That clearly assumes that David saw the Gentile kings to whom he would be speaking as under moral obligation to the teaching of God's law. Indeed, in 2 Samuel 23, verse 3, the last words of David, based on divine revelation, we see that he was convinced that he who rules among men must be righteous, ruling in the fear of God. The law of God that was revealed to Moses and given to Israel as a nation was intended to be a model to the surrounding cultures, as Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8 makes very clear. Let's read that in our Bibles. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8. Behold, I have taught you statutes and ordinances, even as Jehovah my God commanded me, that you should do so in the midst of the land whither you go in to possess it. Keep therefore and do, it, and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, that shall hear all these statutes, notice the word all there, hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that hath a God so near unto them as Jehovah our God is, whensoever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that hath statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? The nations round about Israel were to hear of Israel's law code and to emulate it because they would see the wisdom of God. They would see that there is no standard more just and righteous than what God has revealed to Israel. And it was not just the family ethic in the Mosaic law, 
It was not just the ecclesiastical aspects. It was not just the personal piety of the Mosaic law, but it was specifically the civil and social justice of that law code that would impress the nations round about. And therefore, it's not surprising when you read in the Old Testament later that the prophets of Israel condemned the disobedience of the pagan cultures round about them, including the disobedience of Gentile kings and princes, and condemned it based on the law of Moses. That law was not given to the nations round about in a written, specific form. It was known only through general revelation, God making himself known as the creator of heaven and earth to all men. And yet they were held accountable to the very same moral standards as the Jews received from Moses. Ezra the scribe praised God for inspiring the pagan emperor to establish magistrates beyond Israel who would punish criminals according to the law of God. You'll find that in your Bibles in Ezra 7, verses 25 and 26. Now, I really could go on and on, and I hope that you might pursue some of the literature that I've written and tape series that I have on this subject to get more biblical evidence for this point. But I really must stop there and, and start generalizing, making my point. In light of this cantata of evidence, it would be absolutely futile to think that Gentile rulers in the Old Testament were exempt from the politically relevant stipulations of the law of God. If Old Testament unbelieving rulers were still under obligation, moral obligation, to the political dictates of God's law, how much more would rulers today be likewise under that obligation? What reason would we have to exempt rulers today from that? Well, the only one that is actually conceivable philosophically is, is one that says, well, God had one standard of ethics up till the coming of Christ, and then he had another standard of ethics, another regime of ethics, if you will, after the coming of Christ. Now, that, of course, is an insult to the unchangeable holiness and character of God to say that. But even more, it flies directly in the face of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ on this very subject, when in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 17 to 19, Jesus says, don't begin to think that I came to abrogate the law of the prophets. I did not come to abrogate. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, until everything has happened, not a jot or a tittle shall pass away from this law. And therefore, whosoever teaches the breaking of the least of these commandments shall be deemed least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says God has not changed his mind morally. What he taught as justice and righteousness previously in his law, what we call the Old Testament, continues with binding force, morally binding force, in the New Testament age as well. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, we have a description of the most evil political ruler imaginable. One who has fallen so far away from being the image of God in his rule that he's actually called a monster, or as we say traditionally in evangelical circles, the beast. The beast is a ruler 
And according to Revelation 13, the beast is portrayed as requiring people to put upon their forehead and upon their hand his name so that they are directed by his authority, or if you will, his law. The background to that imagery of the beast having his name written on the forehead and hand is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, where God said that his people were to have his law written upon their forehead and upon their hand, that they were to see the world and to reason in terms of his revelation, that's why it's on the forehead, and on the hand so that what they would do in this world would be guided by his law and direction. But now in the New Testament we see the most wicked political ruler imaginable says, no, we will not have the law of God, we will have my direction instead. We don't want King Jesus ruling here. We want only the law of Caesar. Interestingly, Paul has a different title for the beast in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. There he condemns this wicked ruler as the man of lawlessness, technically in the Greek. Man of sin, man of iniquity in some English translations. He is the man of lawlessness. Here is the one who will not have God's law rule over him, but rather will have his own authority guide and direct the culture and the society that he rules over. How did Paul look upon civil magistrates? How did he look upon them even though they, may, they might be the unbelieving emperor in Rome? Well, in Romans 13, verse 4, Paul says that they are a minister of God. And they are a minister of God who is to avenge wrath against evildoers. And here the vengeance and the wrath are quite clearly God's vengeance and wrath. But if you go back to chapter 12 of the book of Romans, you will notice that Paul has just taught that we are not to avenge ourselves. That we are not to use wrath. Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. How does God take care of vengeance and wrath here on earth? Well, one way in which we could all answer, and it's a pious and a true answer, is that sometimes God directly judges sin and rebellion. That does happen. He's not somewhere far away, uninvolved with this world. However, that is not the theological point that Paul was making in Romans 12 and 13. When Paul said, remember, God will avenge wrath against sin, we go right into the 13th chapter. We call it the 13th chapter. Paul didn't put that chapter break there. Paul just goes down, what, six verses, I believe, and he says that the civil magistrate bears not the sword in vain because he's a minister of God, an avenger of wrath, the very two words, vengeance and wrath, that we've just been talking about. It's the magistrate's sword that is to be exercised under the direction of God for the avenging of wrath against evildoers. And when that happens, Paul says in verse 4, he bears not the sword in vain. 8 to 10. Paul tells us that we can take it as one of the non-negotiable starting points of our ethic that the law of God is good. He says we know that the law of God is good. I wish Paul were here today so that many evangelical churches could hear the inspired apostle say that. 
because what I run into in my lecturing around the country, my writing and interacting with people, what I run into all the time is the attitude, oh, we couldn't possibly do that. Oh, can you imagine that? Have you seen what the Old Testament or what the Mosaic Law says about that? Well, I have to confess to you, because I'm not perfectly sanctified. I'm not the glorified Christian that I'd like to be. I sometimes look at things in the Old Testament and I cringe, and I go, ooh, we're really supposed to do that? But I have, praise God, and it's only by His grace, I have come to the point in my life where when I catch myself having that reaction, I almost always now say, well, Greg, there must be something wrong with you. Because here God has spoken His perfect, righteous will, and you're reacting negatively to it. Paul says we know that the law is good. You don't have to argue about that. Well, today we do, because a lot of antinomian Christians don't want the law of God. But Paul says you don't have to argue about that. You can take that for granted. You can just presuppose the goodness of God's law. But he says it's good if a man uses it lawfully. If you take the law of God and turn it into a way of salvation for yourself, which it was never, ever intended to be, if you try to make the law of God your ladder of brownie points and merit up to heaven, then, of course, it's used in a way that's contrary to its own character, and it's a very perverse thing. Then you have the error of the Pharisees and the Judaizers and all the legalists throughout history. Indeed, that's the very error of the natural man. You scratch the natural man and you'll find a legalist. Under the skin, unbelievers, one way or another, figure, well, they may not really believe they're going to make it, but if they're going to make it into heaven, it's going to be because they did enough good that it outweighed their evil. Isn't that right? The law of God doesn't teach any such nonsense. No one can save themselves through obedience. The law of God drives us to the Savior as the only one who perfectly kept the law and can be our mediator so that we might be accepted on the basis of his righteousness and his substitutionary atonement. Paul says we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully, provided you don't pervert it into a way of salvation, you don't turn it into some kind of self-righteous, meritorious, soteriological program. We know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law was not given for the righteous man, but for the unrighteous. And then Paul goes on to illustrate how the law is to be used. The law is given to restrain murderers of fathers and mothers, to restrain perjurers, to restrain homosexuals, and other things as well. That is to say, Paul saw that the application of the law to the external affairs of life, what has come to be called in theological circles the political use of the law, to restrain the outward misdeeds of unbelievers. Paul saw that that political use of the law was a very good thing. He takes that as his very illustration of using the law properly. And so in the New Testament, what we find is that the civil magistrate is looked upon as a minister of God who is to avenge God's wrath according to the law of God against evildoers. There are those today, however, who just take it as a starting point for their political theorizing that the law of God cannot be applied by civil magistrates in the modern world. Indeed, 
many Christians recoil from the very idea of it. Without any argument or evidence, they will simply take it as a benchmark for testing or rejecting any particular view of Christianity and politics. They take it as a priori obvious that the civil penalties that were prescribed by the Mosaic Law are morally horrid and cannot be followed today. I want to suggest that that approach implicitly ridicules the very wisdom of God himself. That attitude is certainly contrary to the one of the Apostle Paul who said in Acts 25:11, if I am an evildoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. The accusations against Paul had come from the Jews. And he said, if I've done any of these things which are worthy of death, then I insist I must die. In fact, Christ himself excoriated those who would lay aside the penal provisions of the law in order to honor their own human traditions. In Matthew 15, when the Pharisees have criticized Jesus and his followers for breaking the traditions of the fathers, Jesus says, and you break the very law of God. And you know which law of God he says they break? He says the law stipulates that any, any child that dishonors his mother or father, excoriates them actually, is to die the death. You know what I find interesting and ironic about that? Is that as I try to teach Christians in the late 20th century that the law of God in the Old Testament ought to be upheld today and that civil magistrates are under obligation to do so. One of the examples that's often thrown right back in my face is, oh, you think we ought to execute children who dishonor their parents? Well, one, it's important to remember that that law in the Old Testament talked about beating up your father, cursing your mother, being a drunkard and a sluggard. So we're not looking at here four-year-olds. We're talking about 20, 21-year-old children who simply will not get up and do what they're supposed to do, and they will not be disciplined, and they become a threat to their family. So let's just remember what the law is. Now people say, you think we're supposed to do that? Well, if you look in the pages of the New Testament, you will find that Jesus only speaks of capital punishment once. And this is the law that he upholds. Yes, I believe it, because Jesus believed it, and I hope you do as well. We know that the law is good. We know that the law lays down exactly the just penalty for criminal misdeeds. In Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 2, the author of Hebrews builds uh, what's called in logic an a fortiori argument. He wants to show that those who reject the speaking of Jesus on earth will undergo eternal damnation and that without remission. And he shows this by saying, if every transgression and offense in the law of Moses received a just recompense of reward, how much more will we not escape if we neglect such a great salvation as Jesus has brought. But now look at that premise on which he builds this from the lesser to the greater argument. The premise is, in the law of Moses, every transgression and offense received a just recompense of reward. When God lays down a penalty, he never makes it too lenient or too rigorous. 
God always gets it exactly right. You think you have the wisdom to do so? I know I don't. You know, if we take all the things that civil magistrates are supposed to punish, and you were to say, okay, Dr. Bonson, what does this call for? What, do you, what should be done with, um, with rapists? How about kidnappers? What about thieves? What about homosexuals, murderers, and so forth? I couldn't lay it in with all the, the, the proportion and the wisdom and the righteousness and equity that is called for. But God has done that for us. And the author of Hebrews says every one of the penal standards of the Old Testament exemplified the unchanging justice of God. And so I have to conclude that there really is no biblical justification for teaching that the political provisions of the Old Testament law of God have been abrogated today. All of the relevant biblical evidence that we look at, whether we look at what it says about Old Testament Gentile rulers, or what it says about New Testament magistrates, or what it says about equitable penal sanctions, all of the biblical evidence moves in the very opposite direction. It moves in the direction of saying that today's political magistrates, those who rule over uh, states in our modern world, are to submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords by enforcing His law. God doesn't have a double standard for political ethics, as though it was any less necessary to punish kidnappers and murderers or rapists with a just recompense of reward today than it was in Old Testament Israel. The justice of God's law even when it touches on political matters, like crime and punishment, is not culturally relative. I don't think it's surprising that in our day and age, the most pressing criminal problems that we face, what are those? Disdain for the integrity of life, for the integrity of sexual relations, for property, criminal incorrigiality, those problems that are the most pressing in our society today are precisely the matters that are addressed with firmness and clarity in God's law. But our enlightened culture has set aside the law of God and what it teaches about life and sex and property and incorrigibility and so forth has set that aside for the self-destructive fashion and alleged wisdom, which is really foolishness, of this world. As Christians, we do not believe that civil law and morality are somehow separated conceptually. We believe that all civil law arises from a particular moral point of view. All civil law gives expression to a particular moral point of view. And so the question is not, if you're taking notes, I hope you'll get this, the question is not, whether the state should enforce some definable conception of ethics. The question is, which ethical system should it enforce? It is impossible for the state to avoid constraining the behavior of its subjects according to statutes that reflect a moral philosophy. Now what I would argue is that for the Christian, that moral philosophy is taken from the infallible Word of God and the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It is not to be found in the autonomous philosophical speculation or social traditions of men. 
but rather we are to be involved in reforming all areas of life under the authority of the king, indeed the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to reform them by the standard of his own revealed law. Now there will be people in our culture who say, oh no, you can't enforce morality, to which we have to say you can't avoid enforcing morality. It's just the question of whose morality you will enforce. And as Christians, we are committed to enforcing the morality of Jesus, not of Bill Clinton or of any other politician. We believe that those politicians have been put in place by the Lord and are answerable to him. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 13? There are no authorities except those that God has installed, and so they will answer to God. And so the first thing that I need to tell you tonight, this is just point one. Don't get too worried. We're almost done. The first thing I want to say is, yes, the religious right is right. We ought to be involved in this world, even in the area of politics, trying to reform the world, bring it as close to the ideal of God's law as we possibly can. But then secondly, I have to say that the religious right is not right. Because what you have in the case of the religious right in America today is a commitment to a broad program which is endorsed by Scripture, and that is the transformation of all areas of life, including politics, according to the law, according to uh, Christian standards. We should be outside the church, well, we should be in the church as well, but inside and outside the church trying to bring the Word of God to bear on all areas of life. But sadly, in very, um, very many cases, what passes as the religious right does not represent the application of God's law. I don't want to mention names because I'm very grateful to God for the reform efforts that are made by evangelical Christians, even those outside of my theological school and so forth. But uh, one very, very, very well-known Christian evangelical, known for his involvement in um, the the Christian right, if you will. A number of years ago, made a statement which I found nearly incomprehensible. And the statement came down to something like this. We are, as Christians, involved in politics because we want to turn the clock back to the 1950s. This same person endorsed a Republican candidate for president you know, with all the evils that are out there, maybe that was the best choice. But my point is, it was taken for granted that republicanism and the social outlook of the 1950s is what we are interested in. And I, I have to tell you, for all my love and respect and regard for this Christian gentleman, this made me sick. What a sellout of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a sellout of the Lord Jesus Christ. This same individual, and many like him, took it for granted that to be a good Christian involved in politics meant the support of the Gulf War. Now, if you have some question about where Christians should stand on that, I would encourage you to get my tape series, A Christian Ethic of War, look into that. I'm no pacifist, not by any means. But I don't believe that there's any way in which we can justify moral, uh, morally justify our involvement in that affair. You see, the Christian right 
is right to apply the law of Jesus Christ to political affairs. But sadly, what is often applied is American patriotism rather than the law of Jesus Christ. In fact, I've had discussions with leaders in the Christian right, uh, both public and private, in which they recoil from the idea of what I've been teaching you this evening in this brief lecture about the law of God throughout the Bible binding political magistrates. We don't want to go to the Old Testament law. Well, but if you don't want to go to that law, what is your standard for political ethics then? It's crucial for us to distinguish social ethics from political ethics. Stop and think about that for a minute. It's crucial to distinguish a broad area of social ethics, right and wrong in the social dimension, interpersonal social affairs, to distinguish that from a more narrow area known as political ethics. And the reason for that is political ethics specifically deals with the ethics of coercion. The state has been given the sword by God. That represents even the power of death. But it represents coercive power. And the state uses that sword to punish those who break the laws passed by the state. Now we need to distinguish between social ethics in general and political ethics in uh, particular so that we do not give the impression that the state has the right to punish every social misdeed. Not all sins against the law of God are properly to be punished by the state. Not all sins, to put it simply, are crimes, according to the teaching of God's Word. And if we do not make that point, what we have implicitly done is made the state God. Because then every violation of the state's dictate turns out to be something that can be punished by the state, taken as a kind of God. Interestingly, the communist... Uh, Lenin, not, not the musician John Lennon, the communist Lenin once said, we have no more private law, for with us all has become public law. As Christians, we don't believe that. We don't believe that the state has the right to punish anything that it wishes to. Not every social misdeed comes under the scrutiny and the judgment of the state, even as every social virtue is not the state's responsibility to produce. The voice of the people is not the voice of God. The state is neither competent nor is it empowered by God to judge the private lust of an individual's heart or his selfish use of money in light of a neighbor's need or any number of other things. What then made the state punish and by what standard? The special characteristic which marks off the state from other, society, uh, other institutions within society is the moral authority that the state has to inflict public penalties for disobeying civil statutes. As I've said, it's an institution marked with coercive authority. That's why Paul said it bears the sword. It is a terror. It is an avenger of wrath to evildoers. And just because the state bears that awesome prerogative to use compulsion in backing up its dictates, 
whether it's the threat of death or the threat of a monetary fine or the threat of imprisonment. Just because the state bears that awesome prerogative, the state must be carefully and ethically limited in its proper jurisdiction. If the state lacks moral warrant for imposing a civil, a civil penalty upon someone for violating a statute, its punitive action reduces to having the will of the stronger overwhelm the desires of the weaker. Augustine said, without justice, what are states but great bands of robbers? As April 15th approaches, you may be finding yourself saying the same thing. Without justice, what are states but great bands of robbers? Without a moral warrant for its use of force in particular cases, the state's use of capital punishment is indistinguishable from murder. Without moral warrant for its use of force, imprisonment would be no different from kidnapping. Without moral warrant from God for what it punishes, the extracting of a monetary fine is the same as theft. You see, the state must punish criminals, but it must only punish them as God gives permission or authorization to do so. The objective criterion that we need for distinguishing between social sin and civil crime is the law of God, as it prescribes civil penalties for misdeeds. With that, we can, on principle, consistently distinguish between sin and crime, where the state may properly legislate and where it may not interfere. Now you may wonder why Dr. Bonson's bothering to bring that up at the end of his lecture. Well, I'm afraid that Christian ethicists of both politically conservative and politically liberal varieties have transgressed this principle that I've just taught you. And this is where I think the Christian right is actually wrong. And this is why sometimes people that I don't particularly like ideologically or theologically. People who have a point of view that might even make my skin crawl as a Christian, I have to in a limited way agree with them when they criticize the religious right. For you see, the religious right often in the name of Christianity is not concerned to distinguish between social ethics and civil ethics or political ethics. The, Christian right is often willing to let the state encroach upon the freedoms of people where God has not authorized the state to be involved at all. Those with conservative leanings have tended to promote ethically commendable goals. Ethically commendable. Sobriety regarding alcohol. Um, restriction of smoking tobacco. Even intervening to curtail the geopolitical spread of communism. Those are ethically commendable goals, trying to keep people from reading pornography and so forth. These are ethically commendable goals, but often they have been pursued in less than ethical means. By calling upon the state's power of compulsion to be exercised where there is no biblical warrant for it. Likewise, those with liberal leanings have tended to promote ethically commendable goals. And those of us who are conservatives, I think, sometimes overlook this. When liberals want racial integration, we should commend that. 
When they want food or medical care for the poor, we should commend that. When they want education available for everyone in the public, we should commend that. But we cannot commend they're trying to promote those goals by less than ethical means, calling upon the state's power of compulsion to be exercised where there's no biblical warrant for it that can be cogently adduced. What I'm saying here is that sometimes those of us who are on the religious right become guilty in a mirror fashion of the very sin of our liberal counterparts. We try to use the state to enforce moral dictates that God has not authorized in the scriptures for the state to enforce. Now that's why I said to you an hour ago, you want to know the answer to the question, is the religious right right? The answer is yes, it is. And the answer is no, it isn't. The religious right is right in realizing that Christianity must be applied to politics. It must be applied to entertainment and education and economics and to every field of endeavor. Because Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Absolutely. We must take God's word and, make, and let it be the standard of transforming our political order. But often, the religious right doesn't take God's word and make it transform the political order. They take Republican politics or American patriotism or other such things, which, though their hearts may be well-meaning, you know very well that the road to hell is paved with just those kind of intentions. God has delivered to us the pristine, pure light of his law to guide our way. And we as Christians need to use God's word to guide us in the political domain. We don't want to listen to those who say we have no king but Caesar. We want to acknowledge that Jesus is the king of kings. We don't want to compromise with the beast and have his name upon our forehead and upon our hand when the law of God is supposed to be guiding our thinking and our conduct in this world. But I do want to insist as I close tonight's lecture that it is the law of God that we are to use. We must be very careful to make sure that we separate our own personal opinion, our own cultural tradition, our own country's patriotic call from what Jesus Christ, who is the king over all kings and the international Lord, requires not only of us, but of every nation on the face of the earth. I'm going to let you catch your thoughts here for a minute, and then we'll take a few questions about tonight's lecture. I hope, uh, maybe you could raise your hands for me. Do you understand how I am not contradicting myself when I say the answer to tonight's question is both yes and no? Broadly, the religious right has the right program. But narrowly, in some cases, the religious right has not taken its standard from Scripture, but from some other cultural source in our day and age. How many of you understand what I'm saying? In the back. The question for those listening by tape is um, what, in my opinion, is the cause for men departing from the law of God? Well, you know, let's stop and think about that. That's the most natural thing in the world for men to do. Because we are sinners, 
all of us are inclined, Dr. Bonson included, I'm not trying to stand above anybody and be self-righteous, all of us are inclined to want to apply our own point of view to make our own desires and our own standards the final you know, norm for what is to be done. When man fell into sin, that was precisely what he was engaged in. God said, I will define right and wrong, don't eat of this tree. Satan suggested that Adam and Eve should think for themselves. And that's why the tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Will you know good and evil because God has said so, or will you know good and evil because you have said so? And having fallen into sin, all of the children of Adam and Eve, ourselves tonight included, find it very natural to want to define right and wrong according to our way of thinking. I mean, I have written books on this subject. I debate this subject. I pray about the change of the church and the world um, regarding this matter. And yet I have to, with shame, confess before God how often, when a new ethical issue comes up, how I almost immediately start saying, now what do I think about that? Well, guess what? What I think about it is irrelevant. What does the Word of God say about that? So the first thing is, we all naturally incline to trust ourselves and our own wisdom rather than leaning upon God and His Word. But I'll bet your question was meant to be more pointed. Why would evangelicals who are committed to the authority of Scripture make that big a mistake? Why do they do that? Um, well, I, I, I think we have to say in all humility, of course, not, not all of us who are committed to the Scriptures necessarily understand them as well as we should. So part of it's just mental error, not reading, not studying, being confused in the application. But then thirdly, and this is, I guess, where I start stepping on the toes a little harder than, than you might want. Um, Christians have a real hard time breaking out of traditionalism. Um, we all tend toward a kind of cultural captivity for the gospel. We understand Christianity and its application to culture to mean what I grew up knowing as a Christian. You know, the, it, that's where you get this mistake of, well, we just want to go back to the 50s. Well, the guy saying that, of course, is remembering that he became a Christian and grew up, and his view of the world and the layout of things and the way people acted was a 50-ish outlook. But, you know, somebody might say we should go back to the 30s or the 20s or the 1890s or beyond that. And um, we have to, all of us, guard ourselves against that. Interpreting Christianity and the social application of Christianity according to what we are accustomed to, what our tradition has been. Another question. Yes, sir. I certainly don't know all about the pro-right. I, I hope I am pro-right. But the ones that I've been acquainted with seems to believe that in order to be pro-right, you also have to be... Uh, pro-Zionist. Okay, the, uh, the observation made here is that uh, in this gentleman's experience, often in order to be um, following the religious right, you also have to be pro-Zionist or have a particular pro-Israel outlook in geopolitical affairs. Is that what you were getting at? Um, let, let me match your remark with, a, with one of, from my own experience and then and draw a conclusion from this. That actually is not my own experience. 
although I know, in fact, I could probably give you some names and publications of people that are right up that line. I know that's out there. I haven't run into a lot of that. And so what conclusion do I draw from this? I draw the conclusion that probably your church circles and your Christian friends where you move socially has a higher degree of dispensationalist or premillennialist anyway than the circles that I ordinarily you know run in I, I mean I, I speak to all Christian audiences but for the most part my audiences are not heavily dispensational in their eschatology and it may that may be what the difference is well, mine aren't either but, uh, oh is that right Okay, well then it may be that uh, the only thing I can say that would be a helpful response is there are people, I've already told you, who define Christian involvement in politics according to a certain understanding of, say, the Republican Party or the U.S. superiority in military affairs around the world and so forth. And we can go beyond that. There are also conservatives who think that to be a good American you must be pro-Israel when it comes to things. Now, if you have an eschatology that says Israel as a national unit plays a role in God's end-time affairs, then it's only natural that you would think the U.S. government or all government should favor Israel as well. Okay, and in many, in many issues, by the way, I favor Israel's political situation. But I think I have to make it clear, and I'm not trying to be um, argumentative with anybody, I don't do so because the Bible requires that. I think Israel has certain claims, legitimate claims, and I think Israel's detractors have certain legitimate claims as well. But I don't particularly see national Israel in God's end-time affairs in the way that my dispensational brothers and sisters do. But it's only natural that if they believe that, then you see they're going to translate that into what they think is the right political option as well. But I disagree with their interpretation at that point. Okay, a question here, and then back here. I'm going to try to mix this up, and we'll get out of here in about five minutes. Yeah, I was wondering, when you read like Romans 13 and uh, Titus um, 3, 1, and what is it, First Peter 2, 13, just talk about being in subjection, especially the Romans passage, the being in subjection is the main verb with all the clauses which come after it. Um, it seems to be, um, there's some confusion here because when you say that we um, are not to put up or to fight against a, a government which is, is is overstepping its bounds as far as in the moral area, the Roman government was very corrupt, very crooked, um, hardly godly in, in any sense, and, and there are some, some parallels, but for the most part it was not, and this is the government that we are told to be in subjection to. So how do you, do you okay. work that out? The question has to do with the interpretation of Romans 13, whether the emphasis there is upon submission even to a cruel and unjust and wretched government like the Roman Empire, or whether the emphasis is what you heard in my lecture tonight upon the ideal for what the civil magistrate should be as a minister of God avenging wrath against evildoers. Um, and I'll put in a commercial plug here for one of my books. In Theonomy and Christian Ethics, I have a, um, a discussion of that very issue. It's the debate between the normative and the descriptive reading of Romans 13. And I believe that um, what you have here is a descriptive presentation of the ideal for government. And in light of that 
of that being God's intention. You are not to foment revolution. You are to be in submission. The only time we are to disobey the government is when it requires us to sin. However, there is nothing in Romans 13 that forbids Christians from wanting to bring the government into closer conformity to that ideal that is set out there of it being a minister of God. And that's really what I'm promoting today. I'm not at all talking about not submitting to the government, except when they require us to sin. But I want to see the government also submit more fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, too. Now, there was a hand back here, right there. I believe the Lord will in the future return and establish a kingdom on earth or whether he has already returned and has done that and um, let me without asking you to repeat everything again that's the general um, direction of the question my conviction is that when Jesus came into this world the first time he came as a king and he came proclaiming the nearness of God's kingdom and he declared to the Jews round about him that if he cast out demons by the finger of God then is the kingdom of God come upon you and he says that's only possible if I have bound the strong man and so it's my conviction that Jesus at his first advent established his kingdom I think it's interesting that dispensationalists who for years have rejected that view and taught a kingdom postponement theory, dispensationalists today are now teaching that as well. A year and a half ago at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, I found that the dispensationalists there in a panel and even in the general audience where we were discussing these issues were in agreement. The kingdom has come, then they had a little bit different view of how that manifests itself before Jesus comes and sets up... Um, a rule from Jerusalem and so forth on earth. But I think most Christians should be able to agree that in some sense Jesus has already established his kingdom. In Colossians 1 Paul tells us we've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. So the kingdom is here and I believe as Jesus said it is like a mustard seed that will grow and grow or like leaven that will infiltrate all areas of life. And I also believe that the day is coming when Jesus will return physically and in glory and will separate the nations and judge them uh, before the eternal state is uh, inaugurated. So no, I do not believe that the second coming has already taken place. And I still look forward to the consummation of God's plans for planet Earth in that time. In continuation of that question... Well, I really think we should probably take another question. Is this quick? Okay. Uh, in Revelation, when it talks about the last trumpet or the seventh trumpet sounding, it says the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." And then it says, "Because He has taken His command, or He has taken." By great power and has begun to reign. Right, and give the and give the textual reference now. That's uh, Revelation 11, verse 14 and 17. At what point in time is this? I th I believe that took place when Jesus judged Jerusalem for rejecting him as the king, 
and um, and then turned to judge the Roman Empire for its persecution of his people. Rome, excuse me, uh, Revelation 11 specifically talks about the enemy that has uh, done the dastardly deeds there being the city where our Lord was crucified. And with the fall of Jerusalem that is predicted in the book of Revelation, the declaration is made. It is now evident that the Lord has taken his dominion and he is ruling over all things because he has vindicated his name against those who murdered him. And then you'll find in Revelation 13 through 18 in particular, John turns from the seven-sealed scroll now to a little book of judgment that deals with the Roman Empire. And if, and if you would like, I'm not going to debate Revelation this evening, but if you'd like to get into that, I've got about 60 plus tapes expounding the book and our tape ministry and also a four tape summary of it so you don't have to buy the whole thing. John but said at that time, the nations, the dead would be judged. Okay. That was in 70 AD? I'm going to let, yes, that was in 70 AD. And I'm going to leave it at that. You, I'm glad to have you have the last word. If you don't agree with this, let's, let's talk about it, and I'll give you some literature and we can discuss further. But right now, I want to see if anybody else has a last question about tonight's lecture. Two. Okay, we'll take these two, and then by gentleman's agreement, we'll quit. Right here, and then right here. I was wondering, can we expect unbelievers to enforce God's law? Can we expect unbelievers to enforce God's law? Um, this may frustrate you. No and yes. <laughs> the, an the, an the answer is no in, in the most general spiritual sense that unbelievers are not subject to the law of God. Romans 8 tells us that apart from regeneration, man cannot subject himself to the law of God. And uh, so there is a natural antipathy within the heart of the unbeliever. If you have unbelieving rulers, it's going to be very hard to convince them to enforce the law of God which is another reason why we ought to make it a point of rule of uh, um, electing, pardon me, electing Christian rulers so that they will be submissive to the teaching of God's word. But now, on the other hand, though unbelievers cannot live up to the demand of God's law, unbelievers will sometimes outwardly keep the law. And to the shame of my Christian brothers and sisters and myself, sometimes unbelievers will better outwardly keep the law than believers. I know some unbelievers that are much more honest in terms of keeping their promises, not lying, not fudging when they get in a tight situation, telling the truth on their tax returns and so forth, than many Christians that I know. Now the Bible says they don't ever do that to glorify God so they aren't really pleasing Him, but unbelievers can outwardly keep the law. That's why Paul could say in 1 Timothy 1, that the law should be used to restrain the behavior of unbelievers. You know, unbelievers may not respect God and may not, out of love and faith, do what God wants, but they do respect the hangman. And so even unbelievers will sometimes keep the traffic laws because they don't want another ticket, and on and on. Now, if that's true of unbelievers in general, it's also true that sometimes unbelieving magistrates will realize they don't have any better answer than what has been presented to them in the law of God. Now they may not do that because they believe God exists or they love God or they want to serve him and bow the knee to him, but they may say, hmm, you know, paying restitution is better than putting thieves in prison where we have to pay for their keep and so forth and they come out and they just repeat their crimes and so forth. Sometimes unbelievers, even unbelievers, can be convinced that there's wisdom in God's law uh, that, that is better than what our culture is doing right now.
And so my advice is, first of all, vote for Christians as much as you possibly can. But secondly, even when you have unbelievers, you have to realize they'll sometimes keep the law. Ezra, you know, in Ezra, excuse me, Ezra 7 tells us that Artaxerxes, the unbelieving emperor, was willing to have the law of God enforced. So it is possible to have that happen. Right here. You spoke of the uh, Gulf War as being an immoral war, and I agree in some of the details, but wasn't there some uh, moral good in restraining the evil of Saddam Hussein? Well, the fact that some event or socio-political activity is evil doesn't mean that no good comes from it. God brings good out of evil all the time. But the real question is, is it right or wrong in the first place? And again, I'm going to try to get you to buy my series on the ethic of war. The thumbnail sketch answer is this, though, that civil magistrates have the right to use the power of the sword, death, within their jurisdiction where God has authorized them, given them power and authority, they have the right to do that. But civil magistrates do not have the right to use the power of the sword and to tax their people and to spill the blood of their young men for affairs that are outside of their own jurisdiction. In the same way, I have the right to, uh, to verbally and uh, rebuke my children and even to spank them. But I don't have the right to go into my neighbor's house to verbally rebuke his children and spank them. And uh, so, though I believe Saddam Hussein is a very wicked man, very wicked man, um, and I think that those he, whom he oppresses have the right to defend themselves even to the point of killing him in return, that was not our battle. We got involved for, for uh, reasons which would have to be considered, um, uh, in some sense, a... Uh, a campaign for for morality those who don't like the United States would often point out the venial side of it maybe a campaign for United States advantage in certain things but the point is whether it was for a good cause or for a selfish cause it was not our cause and we did not have the right to be involved there somebody says okay well then what what does a country do that is not able to defend itself against the big bully oppressor in politics that is exactly the question you should be asking and the answer will be found in my series, The Christian Ethic of War. <laughs> and with that, I thank you for your patience. I went over time, but um, I hope that something got you thinking tonight that'll help you be a more faithful and consistent Christian in the political arena. And if you're able to, we'll continue this theme of the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life tomorrow on the Lord's Day.